The following presentation was recorded during Teachers Week at Faith Builders. More information on Faith Builders events at fbep.org. Who can tell me the three different levels, the three different types of things that we need to be doing every time we teach a lesson or teach a unit? What are they? The types of things we need to be getting our students involved in. Facts, concepts, and creativity. Okay, what are six questions that we need to be we need to be struggling and wrestling with our students in? They don't have to be in order. Truth. Reality. God. What? Man. Sin and salvation. Right and wrong. Now, I want you just to react to me just a little bit. The session yesterday. What did you hear? What did you hear me saying? Did this connect at all with where you're at and with what you have to do in two weeks when you get into the classroom? Or does it feel like, okay, that's, that's neat stuff, but huh? react to me just a little here. What did you hear? Yes. Okay, it made you feel that you wanted to help prepare the children for their future, okay? Someone else. Maybe you have some questions you want to ask in relation to yesterday. Whatever you have here as, as a response, questions, comments, whatever, this is fair game. Jonathan. Okay, okay, so create a certain hunger and an awareness of a bigger picture. Thank you. Okay. Okay, so it motivated you to, to wrestle harder yourself. Good. Yes. Uh, I guess I feel like in training children and, and like you said, in living my own life, a lot of questions arise. And uh, I guess I felt like the things that you were talking about is the first time you begin to Okay, good. You know, the, the six categories, they're not necessarily comprehensive, but they do kind of scope out the whole field. And there, there's a couple gaps there, but for the most part, they give a, a panoramic picture in which you can add to that structure then. Was there another hand over here? Yes. Okay, she said it helped her to be concerned about the subtle influences that come into our schools and, and 
uh, inspired her to think about what what needs to happen in order to to be aware of that and to uh, to fight against it. And, and I would just like to reemphasize that point again. As much as we may think that we are a separate subculture and we're not influenced by modernism or postmodernism, whatever, if that is our attitude, chances are we're much more susceptible to it than if we are aware that those pressures, we are a product of the dominant culture today. Whether we like it or not, it is, it has shaped us indelibly. Okay, someone else? Yes. Hmm. Okay. Good. He said one thing he had to ask himself is what is his standard for right and wrong uh, as he as he walks toward truth. Anyone else? Some of you ask, where do we go from here? Uh, what are what are some ways that we can can uh, wrestle? In these areas and I think one thing that I would just say to everyone it's important that we wrestle in community it's important that you have a person or two or three that you can that you can talk about what's th these issues with it's maybe a temptation to to struggle and wrestle and search by yourself of course that's a product of our culture as well But uh, I'm convinced that God calls us to move toward truth with our arms linked with our brothers and sisters. And so surround yourself with two or three people, key people that uh, are going to push you. They're going to they're going to ask you tough questions. They're going to, to wrestle with those questions together with you now. There's a couple of resources that I'm going to make you aware of. This, these are not necessarily unqualified endorsements, but uh, has has some good stuff. James Sire, Discipleship of the Mind, will outline some of the same categories that we talked about, virtually the same. Uh, one of the really helpful parts of this book is a rather extensive bibliography at the end called a bibliography we can't live without, and it lists many, many, many books on each of the areas of uh, of truth and man and God and so on. And so this would be perhaps a starting point, along with J.P. Moreland's "Love Your God with All Your Mind." He also has a rather extensive bibliography to to uh, move on further. Obviously, though, these questions, first of all, need to be studied in the context of the Scriptures. And so let's, let's not forget that. Uh, two, other, two other books that I'll mention. One, The Consequences of Ideas by Sproul. If you like history, this is a good way to think about the big issues, the categories. And what R.C. Sproul does is he looks back, he, he goes to the Greeks, walks through Augustine, Aquinas, 
some of the other philosophers and thinkers that have shaped you without you knowing it perhaps, but have shaped our culture, our society, and he shows how they've done it. And so uh, this, this can, if, uh, if you want to see a historical perspective on the questions, that's a good place to go. Uh, there's quite a bit in this book that I like. There's also quite a bit in here that I don't. This is How Now Shall We Live, a takeoff of uh, one of Francis Schaeffer's books by Chuck Colson and Nancy Percy. And uh, you can see it's rather rather thorough in, in working on some worldview issues. Uh, the first half of the book, I really, really like the second half clearly goes in a direction that is not Anabaptist. Uh, you know, one I wish, I wish I could pull a book up here and say here is an Anabaptist approach to uh, a worldview development. It's not available yet. Maybe one of you. That's a, a work that, that you could give yourself to. Any other questions or comments you have before we move on? When promulgating your esoteric cogitations, articulating your superficial sentimentalities and amicable philosophical and psychological observations, beware of platitudinous ponderosity. Let your verbal evaporations have lucidity, intelligibility, and voracious vivacity without redomantad or thespian bombast. Sedulously avoid all polysyllabic profundity, pompous propensity, and sophomoric vacuity. Now that's my advice to you this morning, but um, what is this saying? Can you say this with fewer words? Someone want to make a stab at it? <laughs> Let your thoughts be many and your words few. Okay, good. Thank you for that. Someone else? <laughs> That's boring. <laughs> Let me suggest four words. Don't use big words. That's what that's trying to tell us. Now, just what did you do in the last couple moments? You see what you had to do? I put this up here. You had to engage thought processes. You had to think. You had to think about what in the world is that really saying? How do we get our students to think? That's what we're going to talk about today. And we want to develop a couple tools that are going to be useful in the process of getting our students thinking. Now, obviously, we have teachers here from first grade to twelfth grade. And you're going to use different tools. Or at least you're going to use those tools in different ways, depending on who you're teaching. I have tried. I'll just be right up front. I'm a, I'm a high school teacher, and most of the stuff that, that is immediately in front of me is going to be things for high school. I've tried, though, to pull things together that are a little bit more junior high or upper elementary. So if you're high school, you may have, you'll have to adapt this. If you're low elementary, you're going to have to adapt this a bit. 
I've tried to hit something in the middle ground just so that it's possibly useful for us all. Our goal is to create an environment where thinking is part of the atmosphere. See, that's what we want. We want classrooms where that's what's expected. That's just kind of the air that you breathe. Because you're expected to think here. Now, there's two ways, there's two types of environments that we need to think about cultivating. One is the physical environment. How do we make our classrooms physical environments so that people want to think? Well, there's obviously a variety of ways. One is to use your bulletin boards. Instead of just putting uh, something on the bulletin board that dresses up your room, maybe think of bulletin boards that cause your students to think. Uh, one of my teachers, remember, they put up a uh, one of these big, you've seen the, the giant crossword puzzles, and they'd have that up on the wall, and they laminated it so that the students could use uh, the uh, non-permanent markers, and during break times, whatever, the students would offer me over there, and they'd be trying to figure out other parts of this crossword puzzle. Uh, one year, I did a, a bulletin board where I just put up a whole bunch of pictures of famous, famous men and women, but I didn't put their names down. Just put a number with them. And we had kind of a contest that lasted for a semester where they had to, as they would kind of learn and figure out another person, they'd write it down on their list. There's probably about 50, 50 different famous people on there. And uh, so, you know, as they would run across in their history books or whatever, they would uh, write it down. They spent a lot of time in encyclopedias trying to figure out the different people and so on. Get them thinking. Uh, you might want to have a puzzle corner. Have uh, optical illusion posters on the wall. Maybe post some famous sayings. There's just many ways you can make your physical environment something that inspires your students to think. But not only do you want the, the physical environment to inspire that, you also want there to be a kind of a, an emotional classroom environment in which which students know that here is one place it's okay to think and question and wonder and try out new ideas and say things that maybe other people are going to think are stupid, but the teacher here is going to listen to them and value them. And your, your classroom needs to be safe environments there. That means you're not going to belittle someone for, what, for an idea they have. You know, sometimes we may feel like students, well, they're really attacking authority or they're questioning the Bible or something like that, when sometimes that could very well be an honest question. They really do want to, they want some answers in these areas. And so let's be careful not to, uh, not to turn off the thinking because it's not safe here. You can't, you won't uh, get away with that. The teacher will get upset or whatever. In fact, let's do the opposite. Let's get excited when we see our students thinking. When we see them coming up with an original thought, it may be off the wall, but if they're actually engaging in the process, let's get excited about that. Yes! And in addition, you know, you may actually have to be the one to demonstrate how to ask difficult questions and how to wonder and to struggle and wrestle. So, that's the goal, to have an environment in which thinking and moving toward truth is honored. 
Now, some tools that will help us to do this. Here's where we change gears a bit and, and cease to be less philosophical and a little more practical. The first thinking tool are quotes and sayings. Now, the description here of this is that we use famous quotes and everyday sayings to think about what is being said and to evaluate the truth value. I'm going to make a big deal out of this because I think this is an easily accessible way to get our students thinking. Now, I've included in your handout some quotes, but that's not what I really want to work on. I want to work on a couple others. We'll start with this one. Don't be so humble, you're not that great. This is from Golda Meir. Don't be so humble, you're not that great. Who can tell me what she means here? I don't want to hear whether this is right or not. I just want to know what does she mean. Okay. Someone else want to put it in your words. Do you have another way to say it? Maybe uh, another little quote that we can quote you on. What, what does this mean? Yes. Okay, when I realize that I'm humble, I'm not humble. Keep wrestling with it. How are you going to say that? Okay, true humility is not. Okay. Okay, it's standing tall, but besides someone who's much greater than you are. Okay, Brandon. Stop apologizing for yourself and give it all you got. Good. Anyone else? Are you thinking? See, that's what we want to do. We, we can use things like this to just inspire. What does she mean here? That's a fascinating way to put something. Let me ask you something else now. Do you agree with it? Is she right? How many of you agree with what Golda Meir said? Raise your hand. How many of you disagree? Raise your hand. Okay. Do you mind? By the way, if this is my class, you see, if you disagree, you're going to have to say why. If you agree, you're going to have to say why. So, and that's good. I mean, I want you to say that. Do you mind saying why you disagree?
Okay, you're making it into a specific situation, and and you're saying that it's it would be illegitimate for me to tell this brother here that, hey, you're not there yet. Okay, okay, he's bringing another angle into this. So yes, Jonas. Okay. Okay. So you're saying you're you're going to have to do a little more research if uh, you're going to answer that question well. Okay. But if you give it your definition of humility, and by the way, that's where we could go with it. We could begin to discuss what humility really is, and that's where this this type of thing can lead into that. It can just open the doors to a lot of questions that are are right there for people. Someone else want to comment? Anyone else disagree? Yes. Okay, it feels like she's contradicting herself. Why, why do you say that? Humility and greatness are opposite things. But now you were suggesting that it almost feels like she's saying they're the same thing. And so that's why you're disagreeing? Because you think they are opposite and it's almost like she's making them the same. Okay. Was there a hand? Yes. Be the servant. Be the servant of all. And is that maybe that's a way to flesh out what humility is? Being the servant of all. Okay. Okay. Well, we could keep going for a while. In fact, we could spend the next half hour right here on this one quote. That's not what we're planning to do. Uh, Here's one that I've used a lot. Genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. Who said that? Does anyone know? Yes, Michael? It was Edison, Thomas Edison. Do you agree with that one, by the way? Oh, we'll go on. What? <laughs> yeah, he probably did. Okay, here's another quote. Two brothers bought a cattle ranch and named it Focus. When their father asked why they chose that name, they replied, it's the place where the sons raise meat. I see understanding dawning on your faces. Why is this funny? Some of you haven't got it yet. That's okay. <laughs> why is this funny? Have you ever tried to analyze why what makes something funny? Why is this? You 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 get it and you kind of <laughs> chuckle a little bit. Well, it could lead into that discussion. We don't have time for it now. I have never let my schooling interfere with my finish the quote for me. Is another way to use quotes is to actually have your students finish them. To think about what would be a good line to go in there. I've never let my schooling interfere with my. Some of you have it. Did I hear it? Education. I've never let my schooling interfere with my education. We really should talk about that one. But for sake of time, let's move on. How about along that same line? Bertrand Russell said, Men are born ignorant, not stupid. 
They are made stupid by education. Now, one other one before we move on. No man who blanks education has got the best out of education. Without a gentle contempt for education, no man's education is complete. Do you have any idea what he may have been thinking there in that word? No man who... Hmm. And by the way, it's not that it's fine to just come up with words that might fit in there, not necessarily the one that, that Chesterton put in. We can get there eventually. But what are some words that you may put in there? Okay, no man who idealizes education. Good, someone else. Worships, and by the way, that is the word. No man who worships education has got the best out of education. What's he trying to say? Okay. Okay. The more you know, the more you realize how little you do know. But by the way, is this where education generally takes people? Someone else. What is he trying to say? Yes. Education is the tool, not the answer. Thank you. Someone else. Okay, it is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Good. Keep thinking. What's he saying? Without a gentle contempt for education, no man's education is complete. Okay, you can't just accept everything you hear. You have to work on it, think about it, wrestle with it yourself. Okay. Okay, if I'm going to be an architect, I've got to be able to get out there and get my hands dirty and, and make it work. Okay, that's kind of a theme I'm hearing quite a bit here. But I think maybe Chesterton's getting at just a little something more. Yes. Okay, she's suggesting that maybe the general contempt is saying that education doesn't have all the answers. That that there are some things that, that faith enters in here somewhere. Okay? You need to be a collector of quotes, famous sayings. And these are all over. Ones, now these are ones I picked out kind of for you. These, most of these, or a number of these, would not necessarily be appropriate for use in the classroom. But there's many others that, that can be used. Uh, in the, and you need to be a collector of those. I want to tell you a resource, though, that may be a, particularly for the elementary teachers. This comes from a first dictionary of cultural literacy. And the first two chapters in this dictionary 
verbs and idioms. And so it gives you a whole listing of, of proverbs and sayings that elementary students need to know and be able to understand. So sayings like, two heads are better than one. Time heals all wounds. There's no place like home. There's more than one way to skin a cat. If our students are going to be culturally literate, they need to think through what these sayings mean. Now you say some of them you just absorb if they're used in your family or whatever, and that's right. But what these people have done is pull together the list of sayings that are used in the Western world and in the American world and gives you a, a, a place just to pull them all together. And so I would encourage you to use those. If you're a high school teacher, there's also a dictionary of cultural literacy that has more advanced sayings and proverbs that can also be used. But there's many, many other quotes and sayings that can be a part of this. See, if you use every subject that you teach, whether it's history or science, whatever, each subject has its, its pithy ways of saying its big ideas. And so you, you, by using these in your teaching, you kill a number of the proverbial birds with the proverbial stones. And not only is it engaging the mind of your students, getting them to think the great thoughts, it's also teaching some of the core ideas about a subject. Let's just think of history for a moment. There's so many sayings and quotes and so on from history that you probably already know. I'm sure you do. Uh, finish him for me. Speak softly and carry a big stick. Ask not what your country can do for you, but... Okay. We have not yet begun to fight. Okay, so we can keep going with these. These are sayings that you, if you're going to be literate in American history, you need to know them and you need to know what they mean. I've included some of the things that we've already talked about here in your notes about how to use the uh, quotes and so on to inspire thinking. Let's move on. A second thinking tool is problem solving. Giving problems to solve. Description. A problem in the form of a statement or a question is presented to the student. Students are then expected to solve the problem either completely on their own or through a teacher-guided process. And I want to give uh, just some examples here. First one, let's look at math. By the way, math and science, those are, those are the two subjects I tend to teach the most. And so that's where I'm going to give some examples from. But you can do problem solving in whatever subject matter you have. Now let's think about in math, this first one. One thing you may want to do is just throw out to your students, how many ways is there? there's a tree out there in the yard, or maybe you have a tall school building. You say, we want to find the height, how high this school building is. And what I would tend to do, and for sake of time I won't do it here, but that would be I'm going to split the students up in groups of two or three and say, I want you to come up with, don't do it, I want you to come up with as many ways as you can think of in order to find the height of that tree out there. And so the first process is just to come up with ways to solve the problem. Okay, we want to know how tall is the tree, what are some ways? Well, you give them some to me. There's probably 10, 15 different ways. 
that we could find the height of that tree. What are some of them? Tape measure. We could actually go out there and climb the tree. Very good. Jonas. Okay, we could saw it down and step it off. Good. Okay, we could take, uh, measure the length of the shadow that it, it produces, compare it to the length of a shadow of a known object, and uh, compare the two. Use ratios to compare the two. What's another way? That's right. Okay, we could we could measure the the angle at which we need to that we'd cite the top of the tree, and whatever that angle is, we could plug in um, our trig equation, and we could find it out. Or we could just use the forty-five degree rule and actually walk toward the tree until there is a forty-five degree angle to the site to the top, and then we know that our distance from the tree is equal to the height of the tree. Good. Any other ways? Well, we could keep going. You see, this is one of the things you could do. You give them a problem, and say, now how do you solve it? And then you go out and you actually try three or four or five of these methods. Before that, though, it's a lot of fun to actually predict what is the height of the tree and get each group making a hypothesis, a guess, as to the answer, and then uh, going out and finding. I've just included a couple others here in your notes. You can ask students, how long does it take for light to travel from the sun to the earth? Or, another way to ask the same thing, how old is the light from the sun when it strikes the earth? And so on. The last one there, let's talk about that one a little. If you were able to recover all the gold in the ocean, how much would it be worth according to yesterday's gold values? And by yesterday, I mean yesterday. What information will we need to know in order to solve this problem? What information will your students need to know in order to solve that problem? Okay, how much gold is in the ocean? Now, how do you think that information is, how are you, what form will that information be in? Most likely, you will not find it in terms of pounds of gold. You'll find it, how do you think you might find it? Okay, you, it may be in parts per million or a percentage. Okay, so if that's how the information is, what else are you going to have to know? Who's speaking? I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, you're going to also have to know how much the gold was worth yesterday. What else? Okay, you're going to have to you're going to have to know how much water is in the ocean. Very good. You have to be able to convert from one unit to another. Okay, this is, this is just the start. This is a very involved problem. Now, the reason that I have my students do this from time to time is because uh, when I was in, in school, somewhere along the line, I ran across this information that there was trillions and trillions of dollars worth of gold in the ocean. 
And so as a fifth grader, sixth grader, I made it, decided that was going to be my life work, how to get the gold out of the ocean. And, and you know, here's the fascinating thing. I had teachers who actually cooperated me with me in these, in these mad dreams. And they took me to uh, college libraries so I could get books out on analytical chemistry to figure out how to do this. And, uh, you know, after spending hours and hours and hours and reading lots and lots of stuff, I come across this line somewhere that the value of gold in the ocean is insignificant compared to the amount of money that it would cost to retrieve it. So I decided to uh, go into teaching. <laughs> In science, what are some problems? How do, we, how do we give problems to solve? Well, here's one. What factors determine how long a person can hold their breath? See, this happened one day in class. We Actually, it was during lunch break, and we're sitting there eating our lunch together, and we're talking about a variety of things, and, and someone says something about holding their breath, how long they can hold their breath. And so the next science period, I said, okay, you guys, let's, let's put some numbers to this. We're going to all hold our breath. I'm going to start the stopwatch, and you hold your breath for as long as you can. And when you... When you can't anymore, you raise your hand and I'll tell you the time. And so we'll get the times for the whole class, how long you can hold your breath. So we did that. And then we plotted that information on a graph and we could see who was holding it the least and who was holding it the longest. And then we did it a second time to see if the information correlated with the first time. But then we begin to wonder, well, why is it that some people can hold their breath for two minutes and the next person can't hold it more than 30 seconds? That was our problem. And we begin to study that. And we spent several days studying that problem. First of all, what did we do? We began to think, what are the possible factors that would affect how long you can hold your breath? Let's do that here. Suggest, what, are you, what do you think are the things that determine how long you can hold your breath? Your lung capacity. Very good. That was, that was the first thing we came up to. The, the bigger the lungs, the longer you can hold your breath. Okay? Yes. If, how much you're determined to hold it. Oh, yeah. Okay, the way you breathe. Excellent. What are some other ways that maybe are factors? I'm not saying these are right, but I'm just saying they're good ideas. Okay, and what might that be associated with? Okay, and is it maybe has to do with size of a person or health, perhaps? Okay, what you were doing just before it. Okay, good. So maybe if you had been still for an hour, maybe just sleeping, you'd have one uh, amount of time that you could hold your breath, or if you had just been exercising, it may be different. So that may affect it. Yes? The amount of oxygen deficit you already have. Is that what? Okay. Keep them coming. What else? Okay, but if we're all doing it at the same time, but no, that's a good that's good though, because it, it would may make a difference between comparing one group to another group. Okay? Yeah. We could keep going here. Anybody want to make a hypothesis on which is the most significant factor that we've already mentioned? Think it's lung capacity? Like 
Okay. Okay. He's saying the oxygen. The, yeah. By the way, everything we've said here so far, there is a way to test it, to see if it's right. You see, that's what we're doing with problem solving. We take an issue like this, what factors determine how long a person can hold their breath. We come up with some possibilities, and then we test those. You talk about getting people thinking, it will. We, we did, we tested, uh, we tested lung capacity, we tested age. We thought age might have a, something to do. You know, the older you are, maybe, or if, if an 18-year-old should be able to hold it longer than a 60-year-old. Uh, we talked about the height and the width. We compared all of that. Uh, you know what we found? Now, we didn't do, we did probably 15 to 20 different people. We could find absolutely no correlation between anything. And lung capacity was the least correlation. Some of the people with the largest lung capacity, and by the way, what we did to check lung capacity, and you see, you have to design ways to do all of this. And so we didn't have a neat spirometer to do it with where you breathe into it and it tells you how. And so we just took one of those big old pretzel cans that they use, you know, that you get from Walmart that has the, the Utz's pretzels in, you know what I'm talking about? Plastic container. And we would fill it full of water, stick it into a, into a big tub, and then we just took a tube and the students would get their lungs full of air and breathe it into the tub and then we would ma measure how much air, how much water was displaced. Okay, you had to think about how we were going to do all these things. But we found that some of the students with the largest lung capacities actually held their breath the shortest times. Anyway, can people really tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi? Everybody has opinions on this. Check it out. See, design a way to, uh, to put some data to it. Do people really walk in circles if they don't have marked paths? This one's a lot of fun. You've heard that, you see, old wives' tales are, that's a giveaway already, isn't it? Old wives' tales, fables, those are wonderful things for problem solving. Here's one. Does a candle that has been frozen last longer than one which has it? How many of you think that this is true? Raise your hand. See, you're scared too now. <laughs> How many of you have heard this? That if you freeze, all the hands go up. If you if you freeze a candle, it lasts longer than than uh, if you don't freeze it. How about the one that warm water freezes faster than cold water? You've heard that? Check it out. See, this, these are problems that you can work on with your students. Uh, one of my co-teachers, he had a lot of fun with his on working with. Does tapping the bottom of a soft drink can cut down on the fizz? You know, you see these people, they're, they're tapping on the bottom. <laughs> Is there anything to that? What factors determine human response time? What am I talking about here? You, you've, you've all seen the, the uh, little object lesson done where a, a pastor during his uh, children's church or whatever, he takes a dollar bill and he drops it between someone's fingers. You know what I'm talking about? And tells them to catch it. If they catch it, they can have it. We well, see, what that's doing is... That's measuring human response time. And he knows that you're, that the average humans, actually not just the average, no human's response time is quick enough to grab that dollar bill. Now what you need to do is say, what are the factors that determine how quickly you can grab? How do you begin to quantify that? And so you could take a yardstick rather than a dollar bill and drop it. 
and you can measure some people, that yardstick will drop 12 inches before they can catch it. The next person will catch it maybe in 6 inches. The next person, it might take them 18 inches to grab it. You can begin to think about the different ways or the different factors that go into determining response time. Well, there are thousands and thousands of problems like these that you can engage your students in and ask them to solve. Now, for the first while, you're going to have to guide them through the process. You can't just give a problem and say, now go solve it. But once they learn the problem, once you walk through it with them, they can begin to do it on their own. Any questions or comments before we move on? I would encourage those of you who are history teachers or geography or whatever, um, I, I'd love to add to my list of, of problems to solve in some of those areas. And so I'd like to hear from you on that. Well, let's do one other type of, of um, problem solving. And this is what's called quizzles. A number of you are, I know, familiar with these. It's possible to buy whole entire books that are just full of this type of problem. And uh, so it's very accessible. This is one of the best ways to learn deductive thinking, deductive reasoning. Now what these are is just a little story with some, some information. So in this case, we have one week, five bachelors agreed to go out together to eat the five evening meals on Monday through Friday. It was understood that Eric would miss Friday's meal because of an out-of-town wedding. Each bachelor served as the host at a restaurant of his choice on a different night. Use the clues below to determine which bachelor hosted the group each night and what food he selected. And then it gives a number of clues. Now, I've included in your notes this chart. You don't necessarily want to always give this chart. But this is the way that you can begin to systematically solve problems like this. But even with the chart, it's not completely easy. I think we have enough time. We'll just go ahead and work through this a little bit together so those of you who don't know how to use them get, uh, get an idea. From, the first, from the, uh, the first part of the blurb here, we know that Eric did not have the Friday meal, so we can X that. We know that Eric did not have the Friday meal because he was out of town there. Now, let's go on with the rest of the clues. Carl hosted the group on Wednesday. By the way, does everybody understand what you're trying to do here? You're trying to figure out which bachelor hosted, on which day the bachelor hosted the meal, and what he served. And from these clues, you can figure that all out. But it's not... Now, and by the way, this is about the easiest as they get. Uh, and this, this one is reasonably easy, but there's still some challenges here. Carl hosted the group on Wednesday. So what we can do is say, put a circle here. The circle will mean that Carl is the fellow that uh, hosted the group on that day. And what we can then do is we know if he hosted it on Wednesday, he did not host it on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, or Friday. And also that Andy, Bill, Dave, and Eric did not host the group on Wednesday. So we learn quite a bit there. 
The fellas ate at a Thai restaurant on Friday. So we can say that Friday they ate Thai. And we can block all the others out from that one. They did not eat Thai on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. And on Friday they did not eat fish, pizza, steak, and tacos. Without going on any further clues, put the clue about Eric and the Thai clue together, and what do we learn? Okay. We can put an X down here at Thai. Does everybody understand that? Okay, let's go on. Bill, who detests fish, volunteered to be the first host. Therefore, Bill hosted the group when? Monday. And I think we'll stop there. You know the process. We've got most of the obvious things down, although the next one gives us a little bit more obvious things. After that, then, you've got to start putting clues together to finish figuring it out. Students, uh, I find that these work really, really well in junior high, and, but it takes a little bit for them to get onto it. But once they do, they will enjoy this very much, and it is a great way to get them thinking deductively, thinking um, logically. We will pick up tomorrow and develop a number of other tools. For the most current Faith Builders recordings, visit christianlearning.org. And for more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.